Morning, morning, everybody. Morning. <laughs> it's all right. It's early. But so smart coming to the nine. I, the 12, they're just going to melt when they get in here. It's not going to make any difference. But hey, did you see the, the area in between the buildings? Yeah, that's amazing. So they poured it this week. We didn't realize they were going to get finished this week. We thought we'd still have um, fences around it and that sort of thing, but they took them all away yesterday. So we'll do a little bit more of a grand opening as things, um, as things progress. But we're just really excited to get that done. It's a really great opportunity for us to create kind of that outdoor pre-function area, as they call it, um, kind of the lobby area. My name's Tim Gillespie. If you're new here, I'm the lead pastor here at Crosswalk Redlands and the teaching pastor for kind of our ecosphere of all the campuses and, and level groups that we have. And and um, I'm, just, I'm just glad that you're here. Today we're moving from 1 John into 2 John. And 2 John is um, one of the shortest books. And in fact, it's actually the shortest book in all of the New Testament, in all of, the, all of Scripture. Do you know that it is only 245 Greek words? It's only 245 Greek words. It's a short little letter. In fact, what they call it is they call it the postcard epistle. It's somebody writing on the back of a postcard to his friends, um, you know, saying, hey, these are how things are going. And how, how many of you can remember the last time you sent a postcard or you received a postcard? How many of you can really remember? You can, okay, there's like four of you that can remember when that happened. Um, yeah, it's a lost art, right? Everything from postcards to letters, just correspondence in general, we don't really communicate in the way that we used to um, with that kind of, certainly not with that kind of formality, but I, I actually love getting letters. And when I was a student missionary in the Marshall Islands prior to the internet and email and that sort of thing, getting a letter would make my, honestly, would make my week, make my month. If somebody sat down, wrote a letter and, and you know, um, intentionally to say something. It was kind of amazing. It wasn't a, a short little thought. It was full sentences, if you can believe that. It was really actually incredible to get. And I used to just, because I had nothing else to do, I used to just write letters to people and send it. People I didn't even know I would just write letters to. And it's so different now, right? Our kids don't really grow up with that art of letter writing anymore. In fact, I remember a couple of years ago, my daughter was trying to send, a, send something in an envelope and she came up to me with a stamp and was like, I don't know where this goes. All right, where am I supposed to put this? And she was trying to put it on the back to seal the envelope. It was a hot mess. Um, you know, we don't remember when the last time was that we wrote a letter. But this one, this is a postcard. A postcard, you got to say what you're going to say. you got to say it succinctly. When we send postcards when we're traveling, it's like, hey, wish you were here, which is not true. You shouldn't say it, but, you know, we're happy. We send a little letter. This is a postcard epistle. Both 2nd and 3rd John are actually called postcard um, epistles. They are, they're formal in their language. There's this introduction, there's the body, there's the closing. But in it, John packs so many important words into these 13 text. So we're going to do the whole book today. And here are some of the important words that are really kind of key words for this text. In these 13 verses, in these 245 Greek words, John repeatedly uses the word truth. He uses it five times. He uses the word love four times. He uses the word commandment four times. The idea of walk or live three times. The idea of teaching three other times. And he uses the words children three times. So that's pretty significant. It's like something like 28 or so words that he's used repeatedly. I should say those five words make up about 28 words of the whole 245 words. So 
percentage-wise, it's kind of a lot, these important words. So it starts like this. This is the letter from John the elder. And he uses the term elder versus John the apostle or John whatever his position is. The reason why he's done this is because he was recognized already for his position. Oldest living apostle, only living apostle at this point when he writes it. Paul has written all of his stuff and Paul no longer was alive. So he also has access to all of Paul's writings. So if you see any similarities, there's some of that language as well. Um, John doesn't have to tell you who he is because he's John the Elder. This is the guy, right? He's the one who was with Jesus. John deserved respect for what he had done. And then he says this, I'm writing to the chosen lady and to her children whom I love in the truth, as does everyone else who knows the truth. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to who the chosen lady is. Because all of a sudden, this postcard went from mildly interesting to like, mm, who's he writing to? Who's the chosen lady? Right? I don't know, husbands, if you've ever called your wife the chosen lady. I don't know if anybody would appreciate that. I think if I called my wife that, she'd look at me like, what? I chose you. Um, which, you know, we can argue whether that was a good choice or not. But... Who is the chosen lady? So there's a few schools of thought. I thought they're worth mentioning. The first one is it's a figurative reference to the local church that he's writing to and its members, right? Verse 13 also would be a likewise reference to another local church, and we'll get to that, right? Some people think it's this. Some people think it's a reference to the church universal. So he was writing to everyone who was a Christian at the time. Jerome actually favored this view. If you know who Jerome was, Jerome was a historian. He was a prolific writer, a priest and theologian in the fourth and fifth century after Augustine. So when Jerome did his commentary on these letters, he said, I think it's for the church universal. Um, then some people think it's actually, the recipient is actually an individual lady that he's writing to. And she'd have to be a pretty phenomenal lady for John to pick her to write to. Um, most scholars favor, just so you know, most scholars favor the first option that he's writing to a local church. And when he mentions another church at the end, he's actually, when he mentions another lady, he's actually mentioning another church. Also, and this guy I think tracks, the lady might be a reference to the bride of Christ, which is what the church was called, right? The ch church was the bride of Christ. By the way, the word chosen lady in the Greek is the feminine form of Lord. So it kind of closes that loop. It's used in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It's used in Revelation 19, 7 and 8. She is chosen by God and therefore her children are chosen as well. So if the church is the bride of Christ, then we are the offspring of the bride of Christ. That means that we have been chosen. Chosen not to bring us arrogance or any position, but humility, right? Have you ever been chosen for something? You're like, I can't believe they chose me for that. I mean, that feeling when you get chosen for something is really good. It's not as intense as the feeling of not getting chosen for something, which is kind of the opposite feeling. But this idea that you have been chosen for this privilege to be a child of God through the bride of Christ. This is what it means to be in church. Then he says, something in that text. He says something about love and truth. Now, these two key words drive the early part of this letter. John wishes to establish a connection with his readers about why the letter was written. His love would appeal to their hearts and truth would appeal to their minds, right? If love would appeal to their hearts, then truth would appeal to their minds. No other letter 
so gracefully balances the twin Christian graces, we would call it, of love and truth. And John knew that both love and truth are essential to one's faith. Because love without truth is spineless. But truth without love is irrelevant. I think I'm going to say that again because I think it's a, good, it's a good quote, right? Love without truth is spineless and truth without love is irrelevant. We know this to be true because we don't want somebody to come knocking on our door and trying to preach to us when we don't know them, when we don't love them. We will listen to somebody who's engaged, who's invested, who's a part of our lives, who's a part of our community. We will listen to that person, but we will not listen to someone who has not shown us love. I mean, we may listen, but the way that it seeps into our hearts and into our, our, our whole you know, essence of who we are is very different. And then in 2 John 1, 2, he says, because the truth lives in us and will be forever with us. There's this funny thing in Greek. It's called the aorist tense, right? You don't need to know all this, but I think it's kind of interesting. Because if you change the ending of a word, you have this aorist tense, which means to do something and then to continue to do it forever, right? So when it talks about the truth lives in us and will be with us forever, that's the translation of one word that says the truth forever now is with you. We can't only do it in a phrase. In Greek, you can do it with one word. So I went to the store and I will keep on going to the store forever. That's how we would express that. We don't have that kind of language in one word, but that's why Greek is so beautiful. The truth of God the Father revealed in his son Jesus is a truth that is and that has an abiding reality in our life. In other words, what you know about God what you know about his love, what you know about who God is and how he's going to interact with you and how he's going to save you and how he's going to be a part of your life, that's something that you keep with you forever. Now, two, I think it was last week or the week before, we talked about how God loves you as much now as God loves you in heaven. Uh, you, have, you have experienced the full expression of God's love right here, right now. In the same way, the truth that you know about God, that goes on forever as well. And... I think that's interesting because I think we have a tendency to think that heaven is where we're going to go to get all the answers, right? Because well, we've all said it at one point. Well, that's a question I got for God when we get to heaven. And I think that we have this tendency to feel like heaven is this amazing Bible study that we're just all going to sit there forever, right? And we're, he's going to say, all right, Genesis 1-1, Methodist, you got it. You figured it out. All right, Adventist, you were close. Good job. Not quite there, right? And I, you know, um, immediately people are like, Wait, no, we know what that means. Okay, just don't go crazy. Um, I, I think, but, but what John is saying is that, not that you can't know more about God, but that the truth you know about God through his love, you know it all already, and it's going to keep going. It's an abiding reality in your life. And then I love what he says in verse three, 3, grace, mercy, and peace, which comes from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us who, love in, who, who live in truth and love. And this follows the pattern, right? Though he's following the pattern of this kind of first century letter, John's greeting is filled with Christian graces and a subtle but significant theological affirmation. This is similar to Paul's greeting in First and Second Timothy. But he, what John does here is he serves up this triple blessing. He says, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Right, so what is grace? We know, cards, right? God's unmerited and undeserved kindness. It's freely given to those who are unworthy of such attention. 
It is everything a holy and righteous God does for those of us who do not deserve it. That is grace. And then what is mercy? Mercy, Elias. Only here in all of John's writings. He doesn't use it anywhere else. It speaks of God's compassion and his pity, his tenderness and his readiness to forgive our sin. And then peace, which is a Hebrew concept, right? Shalom, emphasizing wholeness and well-being. Often said shalom and shalem, which is the idea of peace and wholeness in your life. In all of its aspects, safety, rest, absence of hostility, being at one with you yourself, being at one with others, being at one with God, being at one with the earth. And he gives us these three blessings. And I think we could say it this way, right? Grace is God doing for us what we do not deserve. Mercy is his not doing to us what we do deserve. And peace is God giving us what we need based upon his grace and his mercy. And this is what John says. John packs all this theology in, hey, grace, mercy, and peace be to you. And then John points out in that text that they all come from God. So they all originate in the deep love that God has for us and that God is. And then he says, it comes from God and Jesus, his son, so it also comes from Jesus because nothing can come from God if it's not coming from Jesus as well. And this is an important thing that he does to put Jesus on equal standing, yet separate personhood. We're doing a lot of theology at nine o'clock in the morning. You guys all right? You still with me? I, it feels like it's kind of coming as a wave. We're drinking from a fire hydrant here. I understand that. But listen, if you only have a postcard and you got to direct people in their faith, you're going to have to pack it in and write really small, right? Every word is going to have to be pregnant with meaning. And so he writes this way so it's important for us to understand, right? And then after all this, all this theology, at the end of this verse, truth and love are reemphasized right? Grace, mercy, and peace, which come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. And then he gives them a little affirmation, how happy I was to meet some of your children and find them living according to the truth, just as the Father commanded. Um, most translations say walking in the truth rather than living in the truth. The New Living Translation decides to make it a little more relevant to your life. So they're not just walking in the truth, they're actually living in the truth. They're practicing truth, right? It is really, it's doctrine and duty. It's creed and con conduct. We, we know what we know and how we live all wrapped up together in love. And this is really, I think this is kind of fascinating because depending on where you are in your kind of faith journey and your understanding of grace, these texts are either a bit of a burden or a bit of a blessing, depending on how you read them. Because when we talk about living truth or living in truth, that conversation can get a little dicey if you have a tendency to carry truth like a burden. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we burden people with truth that scripture isn't actually giving to people. That scripture actually isn't burdening you with. We'll get more on that a little bit later. He continues, I'm writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning, 
This goes together with verse four very well. Walking in truth leads to love. So if your truth does not lead to love, is it really truth? I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit on this for a second. If the truth that you know does not lead to love, is it really truth? Because as Seventh-day Adventists, we have called ourselves people of the truth for a really long time. But are we seen as people of love? Because according to this scripture, if we understand truth, it would be leading us to greater love, not arrogance, not divisive, divisiveness, not, not, um, not, you know, feeling like we have figured out theology more than anyone else. It leads us to love. So it's important, I think, that you do an audit on what you believe to be true, and then you do an audit on where that is leading you. And if it's not leading you to love, that doesn't mean it's not true. It may mean that you don't understand it or that you're carrying it the wrong way, right? Because a truth carried in the wrong way can be a burden if we don't really understand it. This is why we've done deconstruction, right? So we can get to the elemental aspects of what it is we believe faith to be. This is why we've been willing to jump into scripture and see where God takes us. And where God takes us, certainly through the book of first, second, and third John, always comes back to this idea of love. And there are some people who say, I will die for the truth, but will you die for love? Because love is the ultimate truth. It seems, because John keeps making the argument that God is love. And if God is love and God certainly is truth, we wanna believe, it seems like it's all wrapped up in the same thing. Then he explains to us what love is. Love means doing what God has commanded us. If you just took that phrase by itself, burden, read the whole sentence. And he has commanded us to love one another, just as you've heard from the beginning. I, it seems like John is just repeating himself. You know who also repeats himself quite a bit? The apostle Paul. Do you know why? He doesn't think we're gonna get it the first time. He thinks that we're gonna have to hear that our first job, our, our most important thing, the most elemental thing of our faith is that it is expressed through love and he doesn't think we're gonna get it the first time. So he's gonna explain it again and again and again. Do any of you own pets? Do any of you own dogs? No, let me make that specific. Do any of you own stupid dogs? Because some of you own dogs that are smarter than you, and you know, that's dangerous, I think. But if you have a stupid dog, and I've got two dumb dogs, I gotta repeat everything. I gotta repeat their name 10 times before they realize like, oh, me? That's my name? The dog's seven years old, which is like 50 years old in regular people time, right? Doesn't know his name. I don't think John thinks we're that dumb. But I think John thinks you're gonna have to really drill this into people's heads because love is not always our first instinct. Receiving love or giving love. And John wants that to be that cyclical thing that we do in our lives. And then he says, I, I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Um, we need to be careful that we don't make too big of a jump, but it does seem, he does seem to be making a little bit of an argument that if you're denying who Jesus is, fully God, fully human, it's gonna be really difficult for you to express love. And that's why he's saying these people are deceivers, right? They don't have truth, therefore they don't have love. 
Watch out, watch out, he says, that you do not lose what you have worked so hard to achieve. That's not salvation, it's understanding. I want you to get that, right? He's not saying, be careful or you'll lose your salvation. He's saying, be careful or you'll lose your understanding. You will be deceived, right? So be diligent so that you receive your full reward. This is a call to vigilance in, in light of the danger addressed in verse seven. Watch out is a warning. Jesus used it a bunch. He used it in Mark 8, 12, and 13. He used it in Hebrews 3. Paul writes on that. So, so here's a question. Do we have to watch out because our salvation is at risk? Now, this actually deals to some interesting soteriology, so stay with me. I did not plan on this sermon being so dense, but stick with me, right? Because the question is, can I lose my salvation? There are some faith traditions that say once you have opted in, you can't lose your salvation. There's really nothing you can do. We have a tendency to call that cheap grace, or we say that is once saved, always saved. I don't really like the first term. We can spend a lot of time on that. But it's this idea of once saved, always saved. Seventh-day Adventists come from a tradition that actually gives much more agency to you as a human being. We actually believe that you can, I shouldn't say we believe, our theological understanding, many people believe that theological understanding differently, but let's not split hairs. Um, our theological understanding is that you can opt out of a saving relationship with Jesus. We just think it's a really bad idea, which I hope you would think it's a bad idea as well, right? But we have unfortunately given the experience to people that it's so easy to lose your salvation, it's like losing a set of car keys, right? In fact, there are some people who say that um, we shouldn't ever say that we're saved because the whole, you know, God, Jesus is still doing work in the, the most holy place and, you know, your name's going to come up in the book of light. Let's not get weird about this. Um, so, is it, first of all, is it easy to lose your salvation? I don't believe so. I don't think it's like losing a set of car keys. I don't think we, we trip up and forget about salvation or lose salvation. I do believe that trajectory does matter. In other words, I believe that what we believe about Jesus sets us on a trajectory of whether or not we want to stay in a relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? Because it's not impossible to lose salvation, but I do think it's a choice. I think it's possible, and when you, when you stop understanding or seeking the truth about Jesus, it can even be probable that you'll step away from salvation. Maybe lose is not the right word, separate, step away from salvation. This is why we seek and we search the scriptures every single day. This is why we keep Jesus central to our study and to our prayers and to our community, so that we don't forget the reason why we fell in love with Jesus in the first place. When Jesus becomes secondary to the rest of our theology, when Jesus becomes secondary to the rest of our experience, we stop realizing how much we need him and we're willing to let him not even take a second place, but a third or fourth place in our lives. And then ultimately we say, I don't know that we really need Jesus anyway. And it never sounds like that. It never looks like that in someone's life. What it looks like is the church just isn't relevant to me anymore. Or... I don't know, I just, I, I don't get anything when I go. I, I don't know, I just don't, ah, I don't know. It's, uh, there's a lot of other stuff out there. I don't know what truth is anymore, I don't know. That's what it sounds like. It doesn't sound like, oh, I'm not so interested in Jesus, I don't think I want to go to church. It's not like that. It's something else. And I think what we've done for too long is we've denied the centrality of Jesus 
and how important it is to the stick to of our faith. Because we don't have faith. It's impossible to have faith in all of it. So just have faith in Jesus. Start there and see what grows from that. Listen, John says this, anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God, right? You stop thinking about love, you stop thinking about Jesus, you don't have a relationship with God anymore. You've got a relationship with the church, you've got a relationship with doctrine, you've got a relationship with lots of other things, but maybe not Jesus anymore. And ultimately those things fade. But anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. He's making a Trinitarian argument there again, that equality argument. This says it well. The centrality of who we believe Jesus is sets us on our spiritual journey. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. I wish we would take this at face value. And I wish we would actually think about the messages that people give. Because not everyone speaks the gospel just because they say the name of Jesus. And we've made this case again and again that if you diminish the gospel, you are literally an antichrist, right? But we somehow love good preachers and sometimes we allow really bad theology to sound really good and then we let it stay in our churches, We continue to encourage, to support. We give money to these ministries that literally become the Antichrist in the way that they teach their theology. They teach a diminished Jesus. But let me tell you why I think this happens. I think this happens because we've all bought into a very dangerous concept. And this is the concept we've all bought into. I'm not a great Adventist. I'm a bad Adventist. And so there's somebody out there who's better at it than I am. And this dude sounds really convinced that he's the one. So I'm going to make sure, even though I don't really like what he's saying, I'm not sure that theology sound, but man, he's so adamant about it. Then, then we must let him stay around because maybe he's figured it out because we're not sure. And so what we've done is we've allowed very bad theology to stay in our circles, to stay in our churches Because somebody sounds adamant and sounds very Adventist. And the reason why I get a little hopped up about this is because 15 years ago when I decided all I was going to do is preach Jesus, I somehow became the enemy of the church. I somehow got investigated by the general conference. And, And I can tell you, all I wanted to do is talk about Jesus more and the church less. I want to talk about Jesus more, and I wanted to talk about, sure, talk about all the doctrines, but I want to talk about them all in Jesus. And so I don't mean to be a little, you know, a little cagey on this, but, but I think sometimes because we think we're not great Adventists, somebody who sounds more Adventist, we're willing to put up with bad theology. We need to be careful of that. This is why we push you to Scripture. By the way, we push you to Scripture not so that you'll agree with me. We push you to Scripture so that you can gauge what is good theology and what is bad theology. That's important. Anyway, I'll continue on. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. John says it better. And then he says, listen, I've got much more to say to you. But I don't want to do it with paper and ink. For I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face 
And then he kind of goes back to what he had said in, in 1 John, right? That our joy may be complete. Our joy is only complete when it's in community, the community of believers, people who see one another, who love one another, who figured out how to live together, even if they don't agree on every single thing. And then he finishes it by saying, greetings from the children of your sister chosen by God. I think he's talking about the church that he belonged to. I think he's saying, hey, we're all here encouraging you. We love you. Right? This is a greeting from the church where John attends. But John knows the fellowship of believers, even broader than just his local community, was really important to him. I feel the same way. You know, I'm really blessed to be able to go to our campuses in North Houston and go to our campus in, you know, Chattanooga or New England or Portland. And, and I feel the same way. I always bring greetings from Redlands. Not because we're the, you know, the, the mothership, as they say, but because there's a group of people here that deeply love Jesus. And there's a group of people there that deeply love Jesus. And you need to make sure you know that there's more like you in the world. There's more people than you can even imagine who want others to know who Jesus is, who want to live in truth and love. And this is the take home. And what is the truth? The truth is that Jesus is love. The truth is that God is love. And what, is he, what has he commanded us to do? To love. So to live in truth and love is to keep God's commandments to love and then to love. It's not rocket science. But it is difficult. It's difficult because we're unlovable sometimes. It's difficult because sometimes we don't feel like loving other people. It's difficult for a myriad of reasons, but keeping God's commandments and the command to love is pushing through to the place where love is our highest priority and our deepest need and the hardest work that we do. And then we give it again and again and again and you get to live the miracle of being filled up by the love of God as you overflow that love to other people. That becomes what it means to live in blessing, in the blessing of truth and love. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for, um, thank you for a community that's willing to keep your commandments, absolutely. Knowing that your commandments are absolutely fulfilled in the way that we love one another. Lord, I, uh, I hope that as people leave today, they take that and they take it seriously. Love is serious business. And so may we get moving on doing what you would have us do. Lord, thank you for John writing to his sister church. And Lord, may we, as we build sister churches, be always encouraging, always focusing on love, keeping one another safe from those who would come in to our midst and try and divert us from the centrality of who you are, Jesus. And Lord, thank you that we get to worship you because you are worthy of every single bit of that praise. In your name I pray, amen. Stand and worship with us.